Welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal, episode 36. In this episode, we're going to be covering Earache Records from 1986 to 1995. This, um, this episode idea was actually kindly suggested by Nathaniel Underwood of Damon and previously Akakaka, who, um, when I mentioned the idea of doing, like, possibly coming up, and I'll probably still do these, like, episodes dedicated to Ed Warby and uh, Dan Swanow, as kind of like focus on a few albums from them. He said, how about do a profile of an entire label? I thought a really fun one to do would be Earache, especially these first sort of 10 years of the label's existence, because you get a real feel with this of where death metal and grindcore were kind of birthed from and kind of where they'd end up just as the genre is starting to slightly spin itself out, I guess, around 95. Many of you will already know a lot of the details of this. We're going to kind of skim over a lot of these albums like and for some of the more classic ones we'll probably come back to in greater detail on another podcast because there, there is like at least 40 really essential albums in this time period so i'm just going to go into like the ones i really know and maybe skim over a few so don't get too offended if i don't mention your absolute favorite from this time period of course was founded in 1986 by digby person who seemed to be at the time like the main guy for sort of recruiting bands to the label. I think it's a Nottingham-based label, so a lot of this was built around the UK scene, at least in the very early days. And I think what, like, really kicked it off was the kind of growing hardcore movement in the UK. So, so obviously, you don't know, like, UK, like, the UK kind of invented punk back in the day, but then that threw over to America, got more extreme, and then we sort of had our own more extreme reaction to this. And one of the big bands to come out of this, or a band that would later get very big, was Napalm Death, who had been around for, like, at, at this point, like, the sort of 1986, been around for a fair few years, going through different incarnations. Like, I think they started off as a very um, more straight-up kind of old-school punk band, but started getting more and more heavy as they went on. There's a hell of a lot of lineup changes in early Napalm Death, like to the point where the current Napalm Death lineup not only featured no original members, it features no members from like the first three different lineups that didn't feature any members of the last, um, which is kind of crazy, but also kind of amazing they kept going. So um, with Scum, you get this amazing thing of an album split into two halves. Um, the first half, and it's kind of... I think it all continually centres around this kind of thing of... There was this pub in the Midlands called The Mermaid, which allowed people to put on really kind of rough local punk shows in the upstairs of it. You get loads of different bands kind of hanging out and like playing these short kind of pretty loose punk sets there. But one of the real standouts of it early on was this early incarnation of Napalm Death with Mick Harris drumming for them because of like the kind of speed and intensity Mick was drumming at. It was kind of actually pushing kind of the absolute limits of what had ever been heard in terms of pace in drumming. Um, apparently there was a kind of like healthy rivalry between them and uh, local hardcore band Heresy as well. Like both their drummers were like these super quick people. The uh, the rest of the lineup of Napalm Death for the first half of Scum is completed by Justin Broderick and Nick Bolland, uh, Justin on guitar, uh, Nick on bass and vocals. So we have this like small, tight kind of super fast punk unit where the main kind of aims of it was, you know, playing really quickly and being super aggressive, but still having these like really left wing political lyrics, and eventually. 
this lineup decided to get some kind of recording together. Now, apparently, like, because the sound of scum is raw as all fuck, but when I heard out how it was recorded, I'm kind of amazed it sounds as good as it does. Apparently, they could book the studio out from something crazy like f 4 or 5 p.m., through the next eight to ten hours so they just got a studio for a night with a like one engineer and they all just plugged in played live and then i think just uh like cut in the vocals afterwards recorded and mixed this session all in one go in all in this like eight hour period these these three guys blasted through this session and what you get is this hyper fast hyper distorted like really aggressive essentially still punk but it's got the like the vocals like nick's delivering are like a reproto version of the, what would later become like kind of the death metal scream and and like there's loads of like stuff that's still in their set as like live staples stuff like siege of power off this album is like a really decent song i think just the problem with the first half of this album and the second half as well to be perfectly honest is it's just really, really rough sounding. This also features the amazing one second song, You Suffer, which apparently has the, <laughs> the lyrics, You Suffer But Why, but more or less just sounds like... Um, <laughs> and then, so this lineup really quickly fizzled out with people either like losing interest or wanting to try something a bit different. And then the lineup was later like completely rebuilt by Mick, who was still very much involved in kind of the idea of this extremely aggressive like i guess grindcore by this point i think this really does count as the first grind album ever um, and mick apparently coined the term grindcore as well uh because of the grinding noise of uh of the kind of guitars and stuff mixed with core from hardcore so then the lineup was uh rebuilt with jim whiteley on bass who not really gone on to do all that much Bill Steer and, uh, on guitar and Lee Dorian on vocals, who both will come up loads more in the bands we're talking about today. Now, they made the second half of the disc in a very similar way. It, much like the first one, there's lots of like minute or less long songs, all at this blasting pace. I would say with this next half, it sounds even rougher than the first. And... That Lee's vocal approach is far more akin to the super guttural death metal vocals. Like, you can't catch anything he's saying. Whereas, um, Nick, on the previous half, you can kind of get what he's going for. Again, recorded entirely in a day. Um, I'm not quite sure of the history of why these two ended up getting stuck together. Essentially, when uh, Justin, the previous guitarist, quit the band, he got left with side A of this album. And didn't really know what to do with it. Like, kind of was like, oh, that was a cool point in history. And I think he ended up just giving it to Digby for free to see, like, oh, do you want to do anything with this? And eventually, Digby ended up signing Napalm Death and giving him an outlook to release this album. And it, it resulted, like, they put the both paths together, gave it a really cool cover that really shows off the kind of angry left-wing pretensions of, like, kind of a bunch of starving African children being surrounded by these terrifying-looking men in suits with a great kind of, like, evil winged creature above all of them. Uh, apparently the cover is drawn by Jeff Walker of Carcass, who also designed the Earache logo. But yeah, it's, it's gone on to be this, like, huge, um, 
hugely selling, massively popular album, but was just like such humble, rough beginnings. Personally, I will say I'm not the biggest fan of this album. I do find it that touch too raw, but it really does give you a feel for this was like the first time bands were just playing at quite this this pace. Like they heard stuff like Discharge and were like, we're going to go faster, we're going to go be even more aggressive. So to give you um, a bit of a hint of the sound of this album, we're going to play a short clip of Seizure Power. We get into 1988. So back in 87, we also had Unseen Terror's Human Error and The Accused uh, both release albums like on uh, Irreg Records. But 88 is where we really see kind of the whole thing taking off. So Carcass's debut, Reek of Putrefaction, came out. I'll talk more about Carcass a bit later. But we also had um, their first American signing of OLD, uh, uh, and then released the, their first album, Old Lady Drivers. OLD is a really like interesting one. I literally came across about five days ago when researching for this, where they their first album particularly is like this completely weird, out there, really silly, tongue-in-cheek grind. So it's a massively, massively childish kind of music, but performed kind of really impressively for the time. Like... They're, there's, like, really fast blast beats in places. There's, like, the guitars are really kind of, you know, your quick kind of napalm death style riffing. But then every so often it'll break out into some, like, really flashy guitar solos. And um, and then also, like, elements of, like, grungy style riffs in a lot of places. Like, some quite melodic moments in between, like, the ridiculous heavy moments. The vocal duties are shared uh, by guitarist James Plotkin and uh, drummer Ralph Pimentel. And the vocals on this are bizarre. There's bits of clean vocals, but mostly it's that really kind of aggressive scream. But then this scream at some points will just accelerate into this super fast, like really strange shilly noise actually i've completely messed up the credits like the main vocalist is alan dubbin who just does vocals the other two do guitar and bass drums and additional vocals yeah there's something like immensely anarchic and fun about this album i don't know why it sort of appealed to me so much i'm not really not a fan of like really silly grind but it's just 
the way it's put together, it's quite like, I don't know, it's, it's really quite engaging. I definitely recommend checking this out, even if grind is a genre you find like normally not to be your thing. There's just quite a lot to this. It's hard to kind of sum up in a small clip, but um, I think I'll play something from the first track of Side B, uh, Die in Your Blue Sleep. So another really important album from 88 that came out was the follow-up uh, Napalm Death album, their second release, From Enslavement to Obliteration. Now, this album sees Shane Embry, I think, round up the bass, uh, round up the lineup on bass, and it's just, like, sort of night and day between this and Scum. Like, the production is so much better, the playing is so much better, songwriting, everything's improved. It's like a real step-up album. There's also... Um, spastic blurs before and after which is one i've just not had time to get into so we'll move straight on to 1989 there's a lot of albums that are well worth talking about here and let's start with carcass carcass's second album came out symphonies of sickness um and so carcass is made up of jeff walker who i previously mentioned did like logos and stuff um on bass and vocals ken owen on drums and Bill Steer of Napalm Death on guitar. And what Carcass differ from Napalm Death, they're both doing this kind of like very fast, very aggressive sound, but with Carcass, it's so much more disgusting and dirty. Like the guitars, like Bill Steer's addition to Napalm Death was to down tune all the existing riffs. And then Carcass is ridiculously down tuned. And the lyrics are all this kind of like ridiculously over-the-top gore stuff. Like, from the first time you've got such ridiculous tracks as uh, Genital Grinder, or from this one, Swarming Vulgar Mass of Infected Virulency. Loads of just really insanely stupid titles. The reason I've covered Symphonies and not Reek of Putrefaction is because Reek of Putrefaction, very much like the early Napalm Death, is just this horrendous noise. Like, it's barely mixed. The, the album is a fucking mess. It's like... I find it quite hard to listen to, whereas Symphonies actually is way more engaging. Also, we go from having about 22 tracks averaging about a minute long to this one's got about 10, which are more around the 3-4 minute mark. It's like they're bringing in proper song structures. The other interesting thing that I, I, I don't know if there'd be many other bands quite doing this at the same time is because both Jeff and Bill are doing a lot of vocals, we have Bill doing this really cool, like, 
low guttural kind of bellow or sometimes just like horrible gurgling noise and then Jeff's got a much higher pitch kind of scream, so you've got this nice twin vocal attack. I think Ken Owen, the drummer, actually is still doing vocals in this album as well, so there's a lot of really interesting things going on vocally. The playing is still sloppy as fuck. Like, honestly, OLD seem to be the only really decent musicians on the label at this point, like, in terms of actual kind of playing ability. But it's approaching something far more... far more engaging on that front. Like, this is this is starting to resemble what we'd later see across death metal as a whole. And I think Carcass must be credited as well for taking the move away from the kind of more punk fiend lyrics to going into the straight gore stuff that would be a staple of loads of bands. I say Carcass, Cannibal Corpse must have been doing the same thing at this time, but, you know, quite separate influence pools at this point. Um, so from this album, I think... Uh, a good example is the kind of the classic track uh, "Exhumed to Consume." Like this one, it's really worth checking out. Bill Steer's ultra low guttural vocals on it. mentioned there was um carcass's albums got them in a lot of hot water as well because of the album covers which were i think just like collage cutouts of disgusting images from medical textbooks so again pushing the kind of limit of extremity at this point in time as well it's really worth picking up that there was a weird bit of attention for this genre because it's still super underground it wasn't you know really popular or anything but around, like, but actually, even as far back as 87, um, BBC Radio DJ John Peel got really into a lot of these really kind of messy, aggressive teenagers doing music and uh, actually gave a lot of these bands BBC sessions. So these guys were, like, sort of... Like, a lot of these bands were sort of known. Like, Napalm Death appeared on um, some Craig Charles vehicle. There's a great video of of them performing live on a kids' TV show. And then later, Carcass, when they couldn't get hold of Napalm Death, were asked to appear in Red Dwarf, um, the great British comedy show. And so they was these guys were kind of known. And if you want to hear kind of like any of the, the sessions that were recorded with any of these bands, there's a great compilation called Grime Madness at the BBC, which I'd 
highly recommend uh, anyone checks out if they're into this like history of death metal. Now, in complete change of direction, there's another very influential and interesting band that came out around this time, and also kind of part of the members who departed Napalm Death. This is Justin Broderick, the guitarist from the first half of Scum's band Godflesh. Godflesh are, I'd say, easily as extreme in terms of just like sonically offensive qualities as a lot of the other bands we'd be covering, but they're not fast. They're they're not. Like, arguably not even metal. This is like extremely industrial music. Um, like this is that end of industrial metal that is just really upsetting sounding. So this is Justin Broderick doing vocals, guitars, and drum programming, and then with um, Christine Green on bass. And they do this kind of really slow, heavy like terrifyingly apocalyptic noise and their first album street cleaner that came out in 1989 was this brilliant kind of like the covers well worth looking out it's like kind of a fuzzed out image of a load of people being crucified and just so much of it fits the sound of, of like the sound this band were going for they like i think when they're touring the two members would perform in front of a kind of screen showing weird clips of just disgusting terrifying imagery and yeah, they're just making this really powerful, upsetting noise. And I think by virtue of it having drum programming being that bit more simple to record, it's one of the more polished sounding albums coming out from this period. And I think one I'd say definitely more so than anything we've just covered, it hasn't really dated at all. Like I recently, well, I say recently, about four years ago, I saw them headlining a day at Bloodstock and even tracks of this first album um, just sound just as fresh and terrifying as he did then. Stuff like Christbait Rising or Like Rats are was still really fucking powerful. Um, to give you a hint of what I mean, I'll play a bit of Like Rats. So next up in 1989, we have Bolt Thrower's Realm of Chaos, Slaves to Darkness. Bolt Thrower, another UK-based band. Um, this is, in fact, the second album. They they previously uh, released In Battle There Is No Law, which wasn't on Earache. And again, much like a lot of the first albums of these bands, it's just too rough for me. I can't really get my head around it. But Realm of Chaos really cements basically what Bolt Thrower are and will always be 
of just this kind of mid-paced death metal, but this slow, catchy riff machine. Really just memorable, engaging stuff. Um, Carl Willett's vocals are, again, quite guttural and low, but clear. You can hear, definitely hear the lyrics um, in this. Also, this album has a really rough sound. I think I remember hearing this in an interview of uh, because they down-tuned so low, the gauge of the strings was totally wrong for what they were doing. So when recording this album, all the strings are like half hanging off the guitars, which gives this this really rough feel. It's an incredibly like raw-sounding album. Um, drummer Andy Whale is more or less in time for it, but like there's a lot of stuff where the the drum fills aren't quite coming in where they should be, but I guess it's all part of the charm of this. Um, another really interesting thing about this Bolt for album is at this point they teamed up with another Nottingham-based like small company at the time, Games Workshop, who many of you will probably know of now as like the massive like international gaming group. But now, but back then they were quite a small fantasy miniatures group. And not only did they take some Games Workshop, like, had a tie-in with Games Workshop to do the artwork to get the this amazing cover of this, like, Crimson Fist Space Marine final stand on a hill, they also got one of the Games Workshop artists, I can't think who it is at the moment, to do the, the first version of the amazing Bolt Thrower logo, a name taken as well from uh, an item of elf artillery, I believe. Uh, and... The whole album has ties in with the Warhammer universe of, like, the title Realm of Chaos, uh, a reference to, like, the warp. Then we've got loads of other stuff like Plague Bearer, World Eater, Through the Eye of Terror, and Dark Millennium are all kind of songs that could be featured in the Warhammer universe. Still sticking to this general tropes, like, Bolt Thrower's lyrics were always down the line about war, and they're one of the early bands to kind of carve out that niche in death metal where now you've got like hundreds who do the kind of everything about war like God Dethroned or uh, Hail of Bullets but Bolt Thrower were the first one there also famously like the first of this wave of really extreme bands to have a woman in the lineup in the form of uh, bass player Joe Bench who was with the band for the entire time like it's a shame that's worthy of comment but there were so few women in this genre at the time and, and like this album is really like, really decent, really catchy stuff. Like, a lot of these songs would still stand up against the later albums, but it is very much an unpolished product. So, maybe not the best start point for Bolt Thrower. I think I'd definitely say go for their final album, Those Once Loyal, before jumping into this. But, uh, oh yeah, the other thing is worth mentioning, because it's incredible looking back. Uh, like, a promo copy of, I think, like, one or two of the songs of this was given away in White Dwarf, the Games Workshop magazine, around the time this came out. Which, yeah, is utterly amazing. Um, it's since been remade with a way crappier cover, so they don't have to pay Games Workshop any more royalties, which... Yeah, I'm not all that happy about, but I would love to get a copy of this on vinyl with the original cover, but that will never happen. Anyway, here's a clip of World Eater.
Okay, so I know there was basically like no vocals in that clip, but I had to get in that initial scream of It's just so cool. Love that bit. Um, so we get to like probably one of the like the final kind of most important, possibly the most important of the lot actually album of this era, um, in nineteen eighty nine. That is. So as you may have noticed, other than OLD, um, we haven't really touched on the American scene and. To a large extent, Eric doesn't get hugely involved in the burgeoning American scene of, like, your obituaries, death, cannibal corpse, suffocation, deicide. But the one band they did get in with was Morbid Angel. So at this point, Morbid Angel have finally kind of solidified a, a lineup. So they recorded one album called Abominations of Desolation with drummer Mike Browning, which they were so unhappy with the results of that they scrapped there like it's been released since but was never part of like the original morbid angel catalog so morbid angel is um lead guitarist trey Agzagfoff, i think that's how you say it um bass guitarist and vocalist david vincent um at this point richard brunel also on guitar and after firing of mike browning they picked up terrorizer drummer pete uh, sandoval um and pete sandoval is kind of a major part of what gives Morbid Angel their kind of insane power. This guy is such a hard worker of a drummer. Like, I've been reading Choosing Death uh, by Albert Mograine, um like, in preparation for this. And the stories you hear about Pete of, like, the guys would go out to work and leave Pete in their basement, like, practicing drums and come home and find him, like, pass out in a puddle of his own sweat. And they'd wake him, check he's okay, and just... And he'd be like, oh, I've got to get back to work and just get practicing again. Like, the guy just, when they initially recruited him, he couldn't do double kick pedals. But he just spent, like, a like six-month period going mad, learning, like, just doing double kick patterns over and over again. Once they'd explained the concept, he'd just go for it. And, like, Trey is this really inventive guitarist playing these kind of completely left-field like mind-bending lead passages kind of personally i'd say like a much better version of like the kind of slayer random noise solos because his have a hint of melody it's just like really warped and trey's whole structuring of riffs is this strange warping thing where you kind of can just about get a handle on them but none of them sound right and morbid angel are so much more technically advanced than anything we've covered so far like they're genuinely a very very impressive band and then kind of rounded out by dave's vocals like dave has this really awesome catchy kind of low voice but with like a real power to his scream and all this while playing quite technical bass lines like the, this whole package is amazing like i absolutely love all the first four morbid angel albums i mean i've even got a back patch on my jacket of this first one with its uh brilliant dan seagrave cover um yeah, this is, like, a really epic bit of metal history. And you can just see, like... I'm going to play a clip now from uh, Maze of Torment. And you see the difference between this and then, like, sort of the early bolt thrower.
So that brings us on to 1990, and in 1990 we start getting the first uh, proper albums from a scene that's sort of been brewing, like America's death metal scene at this point is massively kicked off, the UK's kind of got all its main staples in place, but Sweden has yet to properly get in the mix. Now a few bands like Nihilist and Grotesque and Cryptocerebus have been releasing great demos, Dismember as well, but... um, no one had yet got a full album out, and the first uh, proper out, I think this is the first Swedish death metal full-length album, is the very short-lived Carnage's Dark Recollections. Now, Carnage was founded by Michael Amott, who I almost certainly all know, like League Guitarist of Arch Enemy, among many other bands, but also featured three of the main guys who were who were in Dismember and would later make up like the core of Dismember for most of their... Um, their history, uh, Matty, Kari, Dave Blumquist, and Fred Espy. Carnage was, I've got to admit, it, considering the kind of quality of the members involved, it's a fun listen and that, but it's not really groundbreaking. It's like very brutal and in your face and got some pretty good riffs, but it doesn't actually feature much of like, you're kind of expecting some real lead guitar flair with members of Dismember and, and Mike Amott there, but never really comes out but the second and by far probably the most famous Swedish death metal album ever maybe uh, came out this same year released by Eric this is in Tombs Left Hand Path so in Tombs Left Hand Path not only the like kind of first like real um staple of the Swedish team but Nihilist, the band they formed out of, were probably the band getting the most buzz at the time before the, this. So this really had like a lot of a lot of drive behind it. People really wanted this to come out and wanted it to be great. So Nihilist kind of split up after basically the band, as a bunch of childish teenagers, decided they wanted to kick out bass player Johnny Englund, who later went on to form Unleashed, by just disbanding the band and reforming it with the same the same other four members and basically the same logo but yeah in left hand path was kind of a putting together of some tracks that had been on those early demos and a load of new material um so the thing i should get into here is the big difference in the american and the swedish sound like the american sound like in death metal was more technical more proficient um kind of more guttural and heavy as well whereas the, the Swedish sound, I'd say, is a bit more atmospheric. It's a bit more melodic, and the vocals are often, like, a lot, like, kind of higher-pitched screaming. Like, it, like the Swedish death metal scene has far more, kind of, like, proto-black metal influence in it, I'd say. And this album, we get the classic, kind of, core of Entomb that we go on for the next few albums of LG Petrov on vocals, Uth Sederlund on guitar, Alex Helid on guitar, and Nicky Anderson on drums uh, and bass as well, and main songwriter and pretty main lyricist as well. Nicky Anderson was like the the guy really pushing forward 
the Swedish death metal scene. Like he plays all the solos on the first Dismember album as well. So like this great multi instrumentalist talent. Um, so much like all the kind of Napalm Death kids, these guys came out of like loving kind of like a lot of hardcore punk stuff, but then wanted to like incorporate that with more more kind of elements of like the thrash scene and so on. And eventually, what we come to is is Left Hand Path, and it's like unlike a lot of the other albums we've been talking about, this one actually I'd say yeah, Morbid Angels album probably has this a lot as well. Like this one doesn't have any flaws. It's it's a near perfect album. It's an absolute masterpiece. It's heavy. It's aggressive. The the playing is excellent. The guitar tone, that HM2 kind of buzzsaw attack, this kind of mid-range kind of really cutting sound is just perfect. The the another Dancy Grave cover, Left Hand Path, is just really beautiful and evocative. I there is nothing I'd change about this. There's so many cool ideas as well. I remember this also from Choosing Death, uh, Mike Hammett was saying that a lot of what they do as teenagers in this scene would listen to like horror movie soundtracks and do like basically bad interpretations of it on guitar and some of that would kind of form and inspire their riffs. And to push, it, push that to a ridiculous level, on Left Hand Path, we actually have a keyboard sample from the film Poltergeist um, as like a motif in the middle of the song, and to show the level of musicianship and stuff we've got going on here, in Left Hand Path starts off as this like blinding, terrifying, like song led initially by this ridiculous scream from LG and, and all these kind of twin lead guitar attacks and all over the place drumming. Like Nicky Anderson's drumming throughout this is really interesting, but then. Everything gives way to this like clip from Poltergeist, and the song just descends into this beautiful guitar solo coming out of that melody. So, Left Hand Path, the title track, is the kind of the big center point, well, not the you know the kind of the big memorable staple of the album. But then we get a lot of more shorter to the point songs that are e like equally, if not more, catchy, with so many memorable and excellent riffs, stuff like But Life Goes On, When Life's Has Ceased, uh, Drowned. It's a really solid album, like, start to finish, I absolutely love this and can't say enough good things about it. Um, I think to show you kind of a, the vague feel of this, I'll give a bit of, give you a bit of But Life Goes On. Oh, my God. 
another hugely important album that came out this year is Napalm Death's third full-length, Harmony Corruption. So the first two Napalm Deaths were and truly grindcore albums, but this one, it's clear they've taken on a lot of that American death metal influence. Like the the songs are a lot longer. It's a sort of ten track album, mostly four minute long songs, and like to fully show how much they've gone in for that sort of American death metal sound, that she went out to record with Scott Burns, like the famous, um, like famous kind of. Uh, guy who recorded all the death metal in the states at that point in time also the lineup was rounded by um extra guitarist jesse pentado who was also in terrorizer and actually sadly passed away in 2006 and uh yeah and i think everyone oh and um bill steer has quit the band at this point um and so has lead orion and we get barney this still current uh guitarist uh, current vocalist of the band and Mitch Harris filling out the lineup uh, Barney on vocals and Mitch on guitar uh Mitch who's still in the band to this day as well so we're starting to see the lineup like solidify into what will finally be Napalm Death although this will be Mick's final album with the band Harm Clear Option is probably the first Napalm Death album like I really love like Enslavement's very good but Harmony Corruption I actually put on and listened to quite a lot. And kind of interesting, I think you see the kind of the cracks arising in Mitch's playing style at this point of apparently him and Scott Burns had really clashed when recording this because Scott wanted this kind of super tight sound and uh sorry, I keep calling him Mitch, it's Mick Harris. Um uh, Mick kind of wanted to keep doing what he was doing, which was a very fast, very aggressive, but you know, kind of sloppy, kind of loose style. Uh, but like the end result of this album is an absolute classic, and it's more or less the kind of vein Napalm Death stick in for the rest of their stuff. But you know they change it up quite a lot. They've got a lot of albums. If I'm perfectly honest, I've not heard all of them. But I'm going to show a clip of um, the really famous track from this, the the final track of the album, "Suffer the Children." Just you can see the difference in their style between Scum and this, like. The, the bands, they're hardly recognisable as the same group. from 91 I want to cover is Nocturnus's The Key. So after departing uh, Morbid Angel, Mike Browning formed his own band, uh, Nocturnus, who have got similarities with Morbid Angel, but 
there's a lot of very key differences. So they're five-piece with your standard two guitars, bass, drummer, but they also have Louis Panza adding keyboards to the entire album. And uh, Mike Browning does vocals, who's got this kind of, like... He, he did vocals on the unreleased Morbid Angel. Um, he's, like... Both his drumming and vocal approach are kind of just fine. Like, his drumming very much holds the album down, and his vocals are just this kind of, like, slightly growly, not particularly incredible sound. But they definitely work, and there's a lot of catchy structure of lyrics and so on in this. But the real standouts of this album are the two guitarists, Mike Davis and Sean McNeely, who just shred constantly throughout. Like... And not even soloing, just all the riffs are these massive shred fests. While Louis adds the main um, melody with these kind of cool, really sci-fi, like '80s sounding synths over the top of it. It's like the whole the whole album is a massive um, concept album about time travel and some weird like occult stuff in there. It, it's it's all really like super engaging. Um, we got some guest vocals as well from Cam Lee of Massacre and like the early Death lineups, so giving us you know some classic uh, metal credibility. Um, yeah, another Dan Seagrave cover of some like robot in a weird throne over a kind of very strange mechanical landscape. It, it, like. Not Only is the Key, I think, is an absolutely incredible album. And they're kind of like a weirdly forgotten band. I don't know if they never got the cred because because of the keyboards, they were all a bit cheesy or what it was. But this band never seemed to have quite lived up to the reputation of a lot of the others. Like They only had three albums in the end. Like They fizzled out quite quickly, so that might have been a big part of it. But I think they're one of the first bands I can think of introducing the really sci-fi over-the-top super nerdy lyrics into death metal, which now, like, loads of bands do this kind of thing. But at the time, and even just including keyboards, was a totally unique angle. Um, so I think there's some really interesting stuff about the key, and I'm personally, I absolutely love this album. I mean, to show you a clip of what it sounds like, I'm going to play a bit of the, the first track, Lake of Fire. Want anything just to show you how this album starts? Because it's such a weird idea like there's some like keyboard noise and then just like these insane almost like un like completely no melody shredding guitars and then we get the song start proper like definitely a mission statement of a start of an album but yeah it's really cool stuff and i highly recommend if you're into any of the kind of like atheists or cynics or pestilence that kind of stuff this album's worth checking out for just being kind of connected to that weird kind of hyper-technical early death metal, although without so much of the time signatureness because Mike's drumming's more straightforward, I guess.
so that brings us on to 1991, where we have, like, an absolute glut of cool releases from, um, from Earache. We have Bolt Thrower's follow-up uh, album, War Master, which has a bunch of, like, Chaos Warrior types fighting on the front cover and is just a very much continuation of the Saturn they were doing at that point in time and has absolute classic tracks like Cenotaph on it. It's just, yeah, a slight improvement and tightening, polishing of the whole thing from the previous album. And honestly, with Balfra, every subsequent album is just a kind of polishing of their sound. They just, yeah, cut off the rough edges. It's just really, really cool. Um... We get uh, Massacres from Beyond, which Cam Lee has previously mentioned's band. And this is like the one kind of big Massacre album. And if you're really into death metal, definitely an album worth owning and checking out. Um, the terribly named Fudge Tunnel released their first album, Hate Songs in E Minor, which is like the first proper sludgy album uh, I think Earache put out. And this is a really good kind of like... Um, just version of that sound with these kind of very gruff vocals, detuned, low, catchy, kind of swampy riffing with like excellent, really memorable drumming. Like this is some really cool stuff. Um, Old put out their second album, Low Flux Tube, in which they turn into a completely different band. They're now doing like a more industrial metal sound, not as upsetting as uh, Godflesh, but a lot more kind of catchy and engaging. I really really enjoy this second album, Low Flux... Yeah, Low Flux Tube. Um, also, uh, Morbid Angel put out the second album, Blessed of the Sick, which is taking a lot of the ideas from Altered Madness and just making the songs that bit slower, that bit more kind of catchy... I don't know, so a bit slower, a bit more evil, totally not anywhere near as catchy. I'd say Blessed of the Sick of the first four, the kind of David Vincent era of Morbid Angel, is the one that took me longest to get my head around because it is quite so... Yeah, just just really scary as an album. It's very, very dark, but still features loads of their really cool technical elements. And then, so another really interesting album from this time period is Carcass's third album, in which Carcass completely changed direction. Uh, so this is Necroticism, Discanting the Inslerubrius. They still are doing ridiculous titles at this point. So they decided they needed another guitarist to, you know, thicken up the live sound and recruited Carnage guitarist Michael Amott. Um, at this point, though, I think Michael Amott does often get credited with doing too much on this album. He basically turned up when it was already written and just added some guitar solos. But what we get on this album as compared to the previous one is way more melody, way better production, much longer songs. Like we have songs well over seven minutes on this. Um, We've far more complex structures, really complex technical riffing. They've moved from this kind of sloppy band of teenagers into being a very tight, proficient unit. And we still have that great trade-off at this point between Bill's really low guttural vocals and Jeff Walker's much higher screams. But there's a lot more catchy, groovy elements in this while still being heavy as all hell. Like This is a really dark, over-the-top album. And then there's all sorts of cool use of samples. Like Every song starts with these bizarre like medical discussions or a couple of them have like, clips from films, I imagine, and so on. 
And yeah, it's just this is just the point where you see Carvis turning into a really proficient unit. Now, this is also the album, like, one of the many albums where a lot of their older fans would call them sellouts for choosing this particular path. But ah, that's nonsense. This album is an absolute fucking masterpiece. And to show you what I mean, uh, I'm going to play a bit of Incarnate Solvent Abuse. If you're wondering, that particular solo you just heard was called Glue Sniffing. Um, the next solo coming up in the song is Viscous Residue Snorting by Michael Amott. Um, as you can see, there's some ridiculous stuff going on with this. If you look up like the song titles from this particular carcass album, they are amazingly stupid. But really great stuff came out of this. Like Michael Amott largely credits uh, Bill Steer with teaching him how to play brilliant leads like, you know, he'll later go on to do with with his own projects. Also around this time we get um, the follow-up to Entomb's Left Hand Path, Clandestine. Personally I think actually Clandestine is a better album but Left Hand Path has kind of more history to it. Clandestine is just like more or less the same idea again, it's just a bit more kind of technical and the song structures are a bit more kind of mad and all over the place. The other interesting change is Nicky Anderson, the drummer, is doing vocals because LG was briefly kicked out of the band for some reason or another. But what's kind of interesting is until someone pointed that out to me, I had never noticed that like, the two sound so similar. But yeah, if you enjoyed Left Hand Path, I highly recommend checking out Clandestine. But as is more of the same, we'll move on. Um, an album that is very different to a lot of what we've heard here, and the first probably Doom release of uh, Eric Records. This is Cathedral's first album, The Forest of Equilibrium. Uh, Cathedral is a band formed by Lee Doran, who was, uh, or Dorian, um, who was the original vote. Original is like the seventh vocalist of Napalm Death, but the vocalist of Napalm Death on Enslavement to Obliteration and the second half of Scum. He decided he was completely kind of um, sick of what he was doing in that kind of 
more punk, harsh, super fast kind of style, and met up with a few, after some time, managed to gather a group of like-minded individuals who essentially wanted to do stuff that was referencing the old kind of Sabbath kind of sound and kind of old 60s psychedelic music with kind of some more modern, more extreme touches. So he eventually formed five-piece lineup with... Gaz Jennings on guitar, Mike Snell drums, uh, Mark Griffiths on bass, and Adam Lehan on guitar and acoustic guitars, and produced this really quite bizarre album. So, Forest of Equilibrium is, if you've heard any Cathedral, it's not much like their latest style. It's way more slow. It is, like, this far more than anything else they do. feels like someone's taken Sabbath and just slowed it right down to, like, an absolute snail's pace. Like, but it's heavy as fuck because the guitars are super detuned. Lee does these really strange vocals on this one, which he kind of only does for this. Afterwards, he kind of sings more clean. Um... This, he sort of does this semi-kind of growl, semi-scream. It's, like, it's essentially, like, a death metal growl with, like, some clean singing melody in it somehow. Uh, and, like, kind of opening the album up, we have some, like, we have a 12-minute-long song, which is a, a real statement of intent. Uh, pictures of beauty and innocence and... Uh, commiserating the celebration um, so it even starts with like weird flute and keyboard stuff um, but then we still get some like really beautiful memorable lead guitar on this album and we have moments uh, say Soul Sacrifice in particular which is only a three minute long song which does kind of switch things up and get more rocky and more catchy like actually it's quite a catchy album in a lot of places like ebony tears has a really memorable chorus a funeral request as well has a lot of really memorable moments but it's just very interesting this like first real push towards doom metal and like cathedral have always been a bit of a unique voice in doom and got very popular possibly just off the back of being so early to it like i think they were quite inventive doing this at the time in the uk when not many other bands were i don't know quite how it's into like sex timeline wise with like anathema my dying bride and paradise lost kicking off but actually this is kind of interestingly different because those three all started far more death metal whereas cathedral came straight out of the blocks doom and like their most doom album probably is this their first album uh, it's well worth picking up as well, like, if you can get hold of it, there's a version of it with the Our God Has Landed DVD, which is a nice documentary of how it was made, and, like, uh, I think accompanying loads of live videos as well. Nothing were worth mentioning, this is the first of their releases to feature a Dave uh, uh, Patchett album cover. Dave does these bizarre, complex, almost Boschian... Uh, like landscape photos, well, photos, like landscape um, paintings, and he's done every single cathedral cover. This one's a really fun one where if you open up the cover, there's the kind of like night and day, like a kind of positive version of and a negative version of the same really sort of like mad, hyper complex scenario. It's just really cool. Uh, so, off of this, I think. Uh, what should I play? I guess a little bit of Ebony Tears might show the kind of the extent to just how slow this has got. Yeah. 
going into 1992, we're going to speed things up a bit. Otherwise, I'll kind of be here all night with it. But we get um, a few more sort of really interesting releases. We get the debut of Poland's Vader, who, until kind of the more recent rise of Behemoth, were the absolute, like, extreme metal staple from Poland. I won't go into Vader in too much detail because I've covered them loads on previous episodes. But their first album, The Ultimate Incantation, I'm a really big fan of. And I think, check out tracks like Dark's, uh, Dark Age and just fucking incredible um we also get uh this second brutal truth album extreme conditions demand extreme responses i believe that's the second doing the kind of more polished heavy kind of grind sound that sort of uh napalm left for me really practicing at this point in time uh we also have um carcasses tools of the trade ep and cathedral soul sacrifice ep both really worth picking up uh, those EPs if you're a fan of the bands already. Um, Napalm Death's fourth full-length Utopia Banished. The cool album, but just not like quite up to the standard of Harmony Corruption for me personally. Nocturnus released their second full-length Thresholds, which um, is in many ways a better like better than the original but maybe just that bit less catchy um i always bring this up because I, it's one of the funniest descriptions ever but jeff wagner in mean deviation describes this album as the best in frostbitten anti-groove which is like my favorite music journalist term ever uh, <laughs> we also get god flesh is pure their second full length which again is interesting but not hugely departing from the previous album there's another album that came out around this time which is kind of really highly regarded and I don't know why. This is the only release from Confessor, they're self-titled. Confessor are kind of listed as Christian uh, technical doom. But essentially what that means is it's kind of really high bombastic vocals over kind of down-tuned guitars playing quite kind of time signature shifting riffs. And honestly, it... To my ears, it just sounds like shit Watchtower. And Watchtower had already released, like, Control and Resistance, like, three years prior to this. I just, I don't really get what all the fuss was about with um, Confessor. Now, an album I do understand a lot more that came out here. This is the kind of the second proper doomy album um, Eric are putting out. This is Sleep's Holy Mountain, which is, I think, the third full length from the American band Sleep, who would later then split into High on Fire and Om. And this is just them doing their own take on that kind of, like, stonery Sabbath sound. And if you're into that kind of old, kind of blues-influenced, slow-building, kind of rocky metal, this is a really great example. Super detuned as well. Like, I think that's what gives, like, say, bands like Cathedral, who are just listening to that immense guitar tone. But yeah, Sleep's Holy Mountain is really cool. Personally, for me... The Sleep Album I always go back to is their their final one, Jerusalem. Uh, the kind of one track that's like 70 minutes long. And it's not actually their final because they've recently reformed uh, and released a new album. But the, the one album I want to cover a, a touch more length from this year is Bolt Thrower's fourth album, The Fourth Crusade. This... Um, this album, Into the Combine, like podcasts I recently guest hosted a couple of episodes of, and I've plugged loads of times because they're excellent. I've covered this one at length, and I've, I think, largely agree it to be like the really standout classic of Bolt Throwers. Personally, I think I slightly prefer 
their, uh, I believe, eighth album, Those Once Loyal. But Fourth Crusade is absolutely excellent. Um, the the lineups not really change a lot much between the two albums, um, and like sort of between the the previous album we covered um, and and War Master in between. And actually, I don't think the general ideas change that much. It is just that kind of they have just refined this sound down, and now they have this like, excellent guitar tone. The drums are recorded as they should be, and I think we see the move between these years where more and more studio engineers and so on are working out how to capture this hyper fast drumming this hyper fast double kick work as i say if you want to hear more about fourth crusade look back a couple of episodes of into the combine because they've got a really good uh section talking about it or even one of uh, young james's like youtube videos on it was really cool but yeah just to give you a clip I'd like to show you the difference in this and what we heard on realm of chaos i'm going to play a bit of track eight spearhead brings us on to 1993 where we get a load more kind of like classics from Eric Staples but there's three albums in particular I want to cover from this period because I think these see massive not only genre shifts from existing bands but I'd say pretty much the creation of new genres so um before we before we go on to those Morbid Angel released their third album Covenant which is actually probably my favorite of all the Morbid Angel albums 
Um, I won't go into too much detail because it will be more or less repeating what I've said to said for the previous two, but it is more beautiful madness from that band. And if you liked anything you heard previously, very much go check this out. It's absolutely excellent. The only thing I can fault it on is the cover is really shit. <laughs> but sound is amazing. Probably the best mix I think any of their arms have. But in my personal opinion, anyway. But yeah, the other one I want to cover this period is Cathedral's The Ethereal Mirror. So this is the second release from Cathedral. At this point, uh, the drummer and bass player from the previous album have departed, and we have new drummer Mark ramsey Watson joining them. But the big thing with The Ethereal Mirror is the sounds completely change. This is way more rocky and less doomy. Although there's still a lot of like longer songs, the guitars are still really detuned and will be for the rest of their career. And Lee's still somewhere between singing and screaming and what he's doing. Lee's voice is, a, is definitely the hard sell of this band. The songs are way more catchy with way more riffs in there. There's a lot more Lee guitar work. Although still moments of utter crushing heaviness if you hear stuff like enter the worms is really kind of bleak and desolate and then really cool stuff as well like the kind of um gentle outro in prison and flesh i find is only like a two minute interlude kind of thing but really cool sounding yeah like this is just a really really solid album more like another dave pritchard cover although Probably my least favourite is covers for the band, actually. But yeah, there's lots of really well-known singles from this, like Ride and Midnight Mountain. Both are kind of, both really blow up for the band, and both are like music videos. And like, leaning into the kind of whole embracing of 60s and 70s sound, like the band even dressed like people from that era, of like flares and kind of like loose-fitting shirts and stuff, rather than the kind of jeans and uh, black t-shirts of a lot of the other bands we cover we've, we've covered so far yeah i really enjoy the ethereal mirror it's not like i wouldn't say i enjoy it quite as much as the previous cathedral album but i think the direction change is like kind of interesting and well executed um and a lot of people do hold this up as their like absolute pinnacle like it is like you know 10 tracks that are all really catchy and well executed. To show you just how extreme the direction change is, I'm going to play a clip from Midnight Mountain. Now, don't take this too seriously, because I think to some extent they were slightly taking the piss with this track, but it is still really catchy and really memorable. And, uh, as you mentioned, well worth looking up the music video if you can find it, because it is an amazing selection of green screen stupidity featuring the band playing around on a magic carpet. <laughs> Down! 
Just thinking back to that, I, I've forgotten how good Gaz's bass playing is on that. As someone who's mainly like league is half the band, he does an amazing job of filling in there. Um, so this brings us on to another band who had a huge direction change in this point in time. The third full length from Entombed, Wolverine Blues. The band completely shifts styles from this kind of slightly terrifying death metal into possibly the first example of death and roll. Like a genre that's definitely been more proliferated since. There's a lot of bands doing this kind of sound. But in Tomb's third album, they go from this kind of really scary kind of buzzsaw attacking guitars into this way more bluesy sound. Like some melody starts coming into the vocals. The riffs are far more rocky, although still detuned. Like they're not as distorted. They're like really catchy and really clearly blues influence like you listen to a track like hollow man like it's amazingly kind of um memorable whereas a lot of like, their other stuff doesn't have that same degree of catchiness um this 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 album has a lot of absolute classics stuff like rotten soil heavens die out of hand like a lot of these are still songs like the band in their two split formats now um play live all the time and much like uh, clandestine and left time powerful i absolutely love this album i've listened to it hundreds of times um yeah it's, it's just really really brilliant the guitarists take on a far more melodic edge than they have done before like there's a lot of really great bluesy wah heavy uh solos like particularly in the middle of heavens die um and out of hands just this like really catchy kind of sing-along thing there's a lot of cool stuff and this this came in on clandestine but there's a lot of cool use of like little tiny samples from films like buried in the music like rotten soil has uh has loads of these in particular yeah clandestine i forgot to mention though does have a lot of this too and i i really like this element of their sound like he kind of trails off after this they don't they do a little bit of it on the follow-up album but not not so much and and again Nicky Anderson's drumming is once more an absolute staple of this. It's just really, really kind of groove influence with great fills leading between various sections of different songs. Uh, kind of downsides, like, I don't know what's going on with the cover. I, like, clearly this is an angle they were going for, but from the two really beautiful Dan Seagrave covers to, like, like a little square of what looks like a footprint, I don't really... Yeah, I don't really understand what that's about, but, you know, it's it's a minor complaint. The other thing I would say with Wolverine Blues versus Clandestine is, like, Wolverine Blues has a bit of a lull in the middle. Like, the first couple of tracks are brilliant, and the last couple of tracks are absolutely brilliant. But stuff like uh, Contempt and Demon are just a bit slow. Blood Song as well just feels like it's lacking something but it is all worth it for the build-up for a hollow man through heaven's die just to get those great like in ease of the songs they focus on the great bluesy leads more rather than being um rather than trying to be heavy to be honest like the the kind of the shift away from heaviness is really interesting on this and i know much like say carcasses shift towards more kind of melodicism and so on put off a lot of fans i'm sure there's a lot of people who despised and doomed for doing this, and a lot who got on after this point. To give you a bit of a feeling of the style of this, uh, I'm going to play a clip from Hollow Man. Hollow Man. 
so this brings us to arguably the most important album released in 1993. Not even on Eric, just in general. This is Carcass's fourth full-length heart work. Now, me and Rob have covered this on the podcast at length, I think back at like episode 10. And it's an album I'm obsessed with, got into as a kid, and just... It changed my outlook on music. So this is the first point where Michael Amott starts writing for the band, and we have a real change in direction from the previous one, whereas the previous one had these long, hyper-complex kind of structures. Heartwork's far more focused on a kind of verse-chorus, middle-eight kind of style. The guitar solos are the most melodic they've ever been. The guitar solos on this album are mind-blowingly good, actually. Like, not in terms of true technicality, but just... What Bill and Michael were writing for this was amazing. Um, they, they changing as well from the kind of sloppy, messy covers they'd done in the past to actually getting a bit of H.R. Uh, Geiger artwork for this particular um, particular album. Yeah, this is just like as I say, we've been over it before, but it's an absolute masterpiece. It's seen as a melodic uh, death metal album. Um, Maybe that's fair, but to my ears, like the way the guitars are mixed and the kind of there's still a huge amount of heaviness in the guitar tone. It's just not as heavy as older Carcass albums, but older Carcass albums are extremely heavy. Also, there's a big change for Carcass in this that they've completely moved away from the kind of impenetrable gore lyrics to far more kind of accessible kind of themes. Um, yeah, I. I can't say enough nice things about this, so I'll probably try and say the few slight criticisms I have that, you know, just stop this being a 10 out of 10 album. One, it's a track too long. It's it's a 10-track album, but track 9 doctrinal expletives just isn't that great. Um, the other kind of downside, and if you sort of see Carcass interviewed about this, like, um, they recently released all the first five albums and did a short DVD interview with each one. I've been watching for all of them. They're really worth watching because the guys in Carcass are really funny. Um, this is the thing Jeff always complains about with this and is like has never let go is Bill refused to do any vocals so it's just Jeff's kind of higher like brilliant kind of death metal snarl he has like this really understandable but still hyper-aggressive tone. It's just that none of Bill's super lows and, and Ken and Mike don't add any vocals like they did on the previous album. And that's a shame. Also, as Jeff points out, um, his bass wasn't very loud in the mix. Would have been nice to have a little bit more of that. But I can't complain because this mix is really good. And they say Ken's drumming performance on this is absolutely excellent. You can really see the evolution between like the four Cark sounds of... Ken's drumming ability, like, the guy's really creative as well, while not one of the most technically gifted drummers out there, he does some really, just really fun inventive stuff with a lot of the fills and a lot of the beats he brings in, really kind of drive stuff. This has also lost all the kind of samples and so on, it's far more to the point, this album. And yeah, just really, really excellent. I'd be surprised if any of you can't get at least slightly on board with this kind of sound. Um... I was listening to it earlier today, and I was trying to think of a cool clip that isn't one of the most obvious bits, so I'm going to go a bit from track two, Carnal Forge.
at this point, I think I'm going to try and sort of power through towards 1995. So that pretty much uh, finished out 93. In 94, we don't get anything truly... I'm trying to think of the... It's a really important album at this point. Yeah, actually, yes, there is. Brutal Truths Need to Control. Um, I think their third full length is an absolute grind masterpiece and well worth checking out. It's not one... Brutal Truth, one of these bands I just don't know too well, so I'm not going to dive into too much detail there. We also get the fifth full length from Bolt Thrower for Victory, which is a pretty good Bolt Thrower album, but relatively unremarkable in their catalogue. Uh, Napalm Death's Fear, Emptiness, Despair, which... I don't know, it's slightly the point where I feel Napalm Death were running out of ideas on that particular thing. Like, they'll go for a great reinvention and, you know, some of their later material has been absolutely incredible. Um, but yeah, I wasn't so into that one. Uh, then, going to 95, we have uh, another album from Extreme Noise Terror, the kind of sort of one of the hardcore bands who probably influenced Napalm Death coming through in the first place. Like, I think... Uh, Mitch even played with them at some at one point. We get the third Cathedral album, The Carnival Bazaar. Another great Cathedral album, very much in the vein of the last one. Um, uh, another album from OLD, The Formula, which uh, I don't know too well. Like I've, I've only been checking their stuff out recently. But then we get two in 95 that I think are hugely important. We get the final David Vincent album of Morbid Angel. This is Domination. So... Domination, whereas the three um, previous Morbid Angel albums were all following in a similar vein of this very technical, very aggressive, very atmospheric music, Domination takes a complete kind of left turn in terms of sound. Of like, it slows, thing right, slows things right down. We get way more kind of groovy, uh, memorable riffing rather than this kind of like complete wall of insane guitars we'd had before like particularly tracks like where the slime live like david has even got this effect on his vocals that are kind of make them sound more gurgling and ridiculous like this album's definitely aiming more for kind of slow and heavy rather than completely kind of uh crushing chaos like although you do get tracks like dawn of the angry which are just incredibly in your face and very like mosh pit worthy music um, the other really interesting thing is this is the album where they start pushing more into the sort of ideas that will continue with Morbid Angel of like strange interlude tracks both like Melting and Dreaming are these kind of odd keyboard driven interludes which are very very strange we still get like immense solos from Trey throughout this and actually the band's lineup is joined by second guitarist uh, Eric Rutan who's like famous super producer and member of Ripping Corpse and uh, uh, Hate Eternal, more famously. Um, and I, I think this is a really excellent Morbid Angel album, although it's really got its detractors. Some people hate this and feel the change in direction to kind of the slower, more catchy stuff was really a betrayal of their previous sound. I wouldn't quite agree with this. I think, as I say, I, I do really enjoy this album. Whether it quite stands up to the others, I almost wouldn't say it's a change of direction that does this one in. It's just there's a slight uh, lack of inspiration around the middle of the album where a couple of the tracks just don't quite work as well as others. Uh, particularly like Caesar's Palace, the chorus is utterly ridiculous. The other thing I didn't really mention about uh, Morbid Angel up to this point is 
much like I was saying with like Nocturnus and uh, Carcass doing new things in the genre, I think Morbid Angel were one of the first bands to really heavily push the kind of occult weirdness in the lyrics. And this this album particularly goes in on that. Um, and I think David Vincent's delivery really helps with this. Plus, on songs like uh, Eyes to See and Ears to Hear, we get more of Dave Vincent's clean vocals that we first heard on um, God of Emptiness, the closer of the previous album, and the kind of combination of his low, kind of gothy clean vocals and his more clear, like, but guttural screams are uh, a really cool sound, particularly in Eyes, uh, Eyes to See, where it's kind of switching, like, either side of the mic very quickly. And I've seen him do this live, actually, recently, and... It's really cool sounding. The album also has a really interesting turn towards the end with uh, the final track Hate Work, which is largely led by like kind of cool synth samples um, and just a very atmospheric, slow building song. It's just just an interesting idea of like Morbid Angel trying something very different. And, and I, I feel this is, like, this is definitely their really experimental album, but. With songs like uh, Dawn of the Angry, Eyes to See, and Dominate, there's still moments of absolutely brilliant, you know, almost classic Morbid Angel riffing. Uh, main criticism I actually have about this is the cover is just hurts the eyes. It is horrible. Absolutely fucking horrible. But I still think a really worthy entry into the Morbid Angel catalogue. And honestly, most Morbid Angel albums are worth picking up. The only two I'd avoid are... Heretic and obviously Illuminium, Divian, whichever, whatever the one Dave Vincent came back on. Heretic's just boring, and that one is, oh my god, ear scrapingly terrible. Um, but yeah, Domination's a really solid entry into their catalogue. I'd say probably if you're going, you're wanting to get into Morbid Angel, go Covenant first because that's the the catchy, hyper technical kind of culmination of their early ideas then maybe Alters of Madness just because it's got that beautiful kind of youthful exuberance and like just possibly one of the more mad albums then Domination because it's far more accessible than Blessed of the Sick then probably Blessed of the Sick because it's brilliant it will just take a lot longer to get your head around because it's so so incredibly dark um so from this I guess would be a good uh, a good example of it. I think a bit of eyes to see uh, is uh, to hear.
right, that brings us to the final album I really wanted to talk about from this period of Eric Records. And this album really signifies the start of something huge. Although I don't know that it was as popular as it has now become at the time. This is um, At The Gates' fourth full-length Slaughter of the Soul. So At The Gates have been kind of chipping away doing like kind of weirdly complex melodic death metal in Sweden at the time and like this is before melodic death metal was really a thing like this scene sort of burgeoned out of so you had the Stockholm scene which was the, the really kind of aggressive upsetting kind of entombed dismember etc etc scene and then slowly another scene began in Gothenburg where at the gates one of the major leaders you've also got stuff like Dark Tranquility and In Flames and eventually like kind of bands like Eucharist as well I believe Eucharist of Gothenburg. I'd have to check. But yeah, so At The Gates kind of been messing around with very strange, complex music in, in albums like The Red and the Sky is Ours. But with Slaughter of the Soul, they stripped away a lot of the complexity and created this kind of 11-track album of very, very short to-the-point songs. They're mostly around three minutes long, and they are just like these brilliant kind of verse chorus and then like not even proper solos the solos like little interlude bits of lead like um and it's just all based around being catchy melodic memorable but still aggressive and heavy i like i don't think i'm gonna fully cover out the gates sort of soul now because this album spawned too much that it kind of needs to be uh, it, it needs its whole own episode almost like there is a whole wave of like American music born out of people who love this album more than anything else like it its influence cannot be overstated enough it really is amazing but so much of it is just fucking spot on like the guitar tone the bass tone the the sound of the vocals everything is perfect the songs are like precision engineered to do what they do amazingly and then there's brilliant like little interviews like the acoustic guitar led uh, into the dead sky absolutely amazing there's not I, I don't believe you can fault this album there's just nothing wrong with it it is it is really supremely catchy supremely memorable but still heavy still like it doesn't lose itself in the way a lot of melodic music can can do to just being a bit too cheesy but as I said, I just wanted to drop this in here because this kind of gives a really good example of the change that's about to come over a lot of music because death metal is about to sort of spin itself out and we're gonna soon hit the rise of new metal at this point in time. Um, but what happened here with a lot of these like melodic bands in Sweden, and a lot of them kept forging forward, forging out the gates broke up after this, only to reform many, many years later when there was more interest again. Um, but like you see, like in Flames and Drunk Tranquility, both kept forging on, and then this, as I say, burgeoned out into a massive, massive scene. So it's really interesting that Earache were kind of on the forefront of so much of this. Like as you see, they picked up like kind of that wave of doom really early on. They got in there with like some very early, the more extreme industrial bands. They jumped on the American and Swedish waves of death metal. Then they're here for the kind of wave of Swedish melodic death metal. And we've got weird experimental stuff like uh, OLD. Uh, they picked up Pitch Shifter back when they were interesting around the first album before they turned into horrible new metal. Um, 
like yeah there's, there's so many like really extremely interesting things earache were on and pushing forward i mean since they've become a more mainstream label and i'm not as into a lot of their more recent output although in 2016 they put up both uh uh, Worm Rot's Voices, which is an amazing grind album, and my favourite album of 2016, um, Vector's Terminal Redux. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff they're covering. One thing you may have noticed from this time period that they totally missed was black metal. Like, And it's quite funny, the reason Earache missed black metal was something interesting was happening in Norway, and they're like, oh yeah, we want to get in on this. We'll chat to one of the bands, get get one of them to come over to the UK, like hang out and you know see see if we can do something together. Unfortunately, the person they chose to chat to was Varg Vikernes, who started within about you know half a day of hanging out with them, started going on about white power shit, and they're like, "Oh, we don't want anything to do with this genre. It's clearly terrible. Like, well, it's clearly full of terrible people, which you know they're only half wrong on." Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's a shame Eric never really jumped in on that, but. You can see, like, this amazing catalogue of stuff that Digby and, you know, co-workers managed to put together over this 10-year period. It's amazing the evolution of music from Napalm Death's Scum to At The Gate's Slaughter of the Soul in, in the space of about eight years. Like, that's... It's absolutely crazy to think, like, that kind of change from studios barely knowing what to do with stuff and, and bands being able to get no more attention than you know, a day of studio time to the beautiful polish that is on Slaughter of the Soul. Um, yeah, so hit me up. Let, you know, let me know what you think about this. This was a, a definitely a change in the user style for Phil's Breakfast Metal. I don't normally kind of feature such short segments of songs. Like, I, I understand with a lot of these, they don't give a great picture. But also, you know, we're playing like 15 tracks there. I think I couldn't dive into too much detail. Also, let me know if any of these albums you'd like me to go into more detail on, or ones I just totally missed. Like, I don't think I even mentioned Cadavers in Pains, which is, you know, another excellent one from this time period um, on Earache. But there's just so much here. Like, I had to completely skip Brutal Truth because I just didn't have time on my research to give them a proper listen again. Like, I think I had to listen to about 30 albums in preparation for this, which is... Yeah, a hell of a thing. I'd like to do another label profile like this again, but yeah, hit me up if there's any labels you'd like me to go into more detail on. Like, yeah, do something like this again. Or let me know if this just, just didn't work for you. Also, I guarantee there is a couple of mistakes in there. That's just too much information to hold together in one go. But yeah, let, let me know if I did completely fuck something up. I'm, I will happily hold my hands up to those kind of mistakes. Um, so yeah, hit us up at... At Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook, at Breakfast Metal on Twitter, Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail.com. That'd be really great. If you could rate and review us on iTunes, that'd be really cool. Also, as of like yesterday, uh, Into the Combine released the second episode I guest hosted for them, which is just like kind of uh, showing off new music we're listening to and uh, live reviews. But it's really good fun. It's got a great interview for, with Gorod Singer at the end of it. So, Go check that out. Show those guys some love because their podcast is absolutely excellent. I really think they're one of the best in the game at the moment, if not the best of the kind of cool metal review show. Uh, and they're way more forward-thinking than me. I kind of like sticking to older stuff. But yeah, uh, as I say, hit us up. Let us know what you'd like what you'd like me to cover. Like, I'm happy to dive into all sorts. Um, 
probably the next thing we'll release is I imagine me and Rob will get together late December to do our kind of review of the year. So unless I get a chance to do another solo one before then, we'll probably be back late December discussing what we've been listening to this year. Uh, so to play us out, I think we're going to play a clip from Suicide Nation. <laughs>